Hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome to episode 16 of Divergent Opinions. That was a dramatic pause. Did you get very tense there? Were you like, oh my God, he's not going to finish and I'm going to be unfulfilled? I was thinking for a second, maybe you had a stroke. <laughs> uh, maybe next time. How's things? What's new? Uh, not too much. New version of clip wrap. Yeah. It's loaded in the barrel of the gun. Oh, it's yeah. aimed. It's aimed at the customer's head. I forgot what you were talking about for a second. Clip wrap. Yeah, two point four point four coming soon to a uh, automatic updater near you. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be super awesome. Yeah. It's, we want. We could talk about metadata today. Yeah, we could. You want to? Let's do it. I don't remember what Philip Hodgett's accent sounds like. He's like kind of Australian. They're all kind of Australian. No. He's probably New Zealandish, huh? Is he? Oh, I, might, I bet that was insulting. Because I didn't call them Kiwis, or? No, because I said he sounded like an Australian and not like a New Zealander. Oh. Yeah. Because they're totally different. Yeah. One likes bungee jumping and one likes punching people in bars. Getting stung by poisonous things. I don't know which one's which. Yeah. Okay. Metadata. Uh, hey, yeah, so... Uh, we should start this. Clip wrap. We're already going. I'm not editing. <laughs> what are you talking about? I know, I know. Uh, clip wrap 2.4.4, um, among a variety of other minor fixes, adds one thing um, that people have been asking for forever and we've been punting on forever, um, which is parsing metadata out of camera files. And right. So the reason we've been punting for ages, if you've ever emailed, you've probably gotten a response from me saying like, yeah, we'd like to do that, but that'd be really hard because it's not very well documented. And every manufacturer has a bunch of custom stuff that they don't document either. Uh, Right. But I guess we got tired of procrastinating, and so we added it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and, and it'll be interesting to see how it's used. That's kind of what I'm most interested in talking about because, okay, so when we say metadata, um, there are a number of things that the cameras are now writing into their files. So some cameras, I mean, the the big one that everyone knows because we've supported for since the beginning is timecode. So the camera, in addition to recording audio and video records, you know, eight, some sort of number for each frame that gets recorded. You know, in most cases, it's SMPTE timecode or something close to it. You know, hours, minutes, seconds, and frames since some point in time, either synced to the clock on the wall or synced to, you know, just a runtime from when you start the record or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and so that's something that you know is traditional metadata that gets moved along with files and all you know most of the the major quicktime apps definitely all the editing apps have sort of consolidated on a way to parse that time code out and so you know it's a great example of what metadata is really great for you you can have this file you can move it between things and everybody has the same time and it allows you to do things like you know edls between applications and recut stuff in other systems move stuff from one from your edit to your color correct 
and have things automatically match back up. And that's largely because of the time code information. And then, um, at least traditionally, there's a, a real data attached to each clip as well as metadata, although that's become less and less used as we've gotten rid of the login capture stage. Right. And so the question is, you know, some of the things that are being added into these and that these cameras are writing out now are, you know, just random user entered data, um, GPS data, so the location where the the record was done is a big one. Um, and then a lot of um, data about the shooting environment or, or how the camera was set up, so we're getting um, aperture, shutter speed, um, gain, white balance level, zoom level, focus level, all that kind of stuff, um, which I don't know, you know, necessarily how useful some of that information is. I guess it can be interesting, um, you know, sort of in retrospect to think about um, sort of look at maybe what was going on, but uh, it's there, and so we're going to parse it. Um, and what you'll notice in this first release is that we're sort of um, we're parsing a lot of stuff and not necessarily presenting it in a way that might be all that useful um, because some of these things. Uh, we don't have enough data to know exactly how to display some of this stuff or what the best way to display some of this data is. So, um, for example, shutter speed, what's the most useful way to display that? And, and part of the problem is we don't know exactly how users are going to use that data. Um, so if you're just sort of viewing it for informational purposes, you might want shutter speed expressed in, you know, a 1 over 48 or something. Whereas if you're going to be parsing this metadata programmatically and using it to trigger something in a workflow or whatever, you'd probably like that in, in another form um, or with your right. numerator and denominator split or, or whatever. And so we're, we're sort of, you know, looking for feedback and we'll be looking for both feedback and sample files um, if there are other bits of data you want to parse out um, because, you know, we've got some documentation and we've looked at our test files, but uh, what's really great is if you you know have a camera and there's a particular thing you're wondering about. So one of the things that came up in in this release cycle was someone wanted um, files to be flagged based on whether they're files coming off of a Canon camera and wanted them to be flagged based on whether they were in what Canon calls PF um, or what other manufacturers called PSF mode. Um, and we were able to track down the flag for that in the metadata bundle. And so if there are other things like that, you know, users can let us know and we can do a little digging, um, but we don't know to look for some of those things without information from users. Right. I mean, so those those are the sort of things we've always been doing. I mean, there's lots of metadata that that we use to hint to us what format we should be making these files in. I mean, that's been the big thing. Right. That's you know, that's the, the the major advantage of ClipRep over something else. Any of the other tools is that you we actually go through all that metadata and figure out what the best transcode format is, so that when you choose ProRes, we're really choosing between you know. We're pulling on thirty levers in the ProRes codec to decide what, you know, what frame rate you're going to have, what frame size, what your pixel aspect ratios, all that stuff. So it just goes through and comes out with the least amount of changes. And so this PSF thing that we've added is, you know, one of those sort of things where we find the metadata, set up our pipeline in such a way that the file you get at the other end is what you put in. Right. Um, and th those are great. Those are really easy for us to add because they 
they drive our internal mechanism, and so we don't we don't have to play well with anyone else. What's going to be interesting is how people. So so we're stuffing location now into these files, and I can see you know people have shown some pretty compelling reasons for why you would want that, um, but. But you know, at, at the other end of it, there's no, there's no tools which are reading those out and providing a lot of functionality. And so, right. And and one of the other things that'll be interesting with location um, to see is you know QuickTime has the, the way that you do location in QuickTime is a sort of point in time. You know, you were located. Uh, movies have one GPS location. Um, whereas some of these cameras at least actually record our real-time track as the camera moves. So if you're driving with a camera, for example, QuickTime doesn't ha- really have a way to represent that. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if people come up with workflows where having that would be useful um, and, and whether you know they come back to us and come up with some compelling use cases. I think you know off the bat, what people will like and appreciate. We have a lot of ClipRap users who um, use ClipRap because they primarily shoot stills with something like a Panasonic GH2 and then also shoot video with that same camera and they want to manage their whole library in Aperture. Um, and so they use ClipRap to can just rewrap those files and get them into Aperture. And one of the nice things now is that in addition to their stills having GPS tagging, uh, their videos will have GPS tagging as well in a way that Aperture will read. Um, right. And so that'll be so, pretty cool. And yeah, Aperture can Aperture do some and, cool things. And iMovie seem to be the two apps that are doing anything with this right those are the two i know of um there may be others because we're using the same um, gps tagging system that the iphone uses so anything else that can pull interesting gps data out of iphone files um, we'll be able to pull it from our quicktime files as well yeah but i guess it's i mean my what i'm curious to talk about is if you see anything coming of I mean so metadata you know this has been something that's been happening across you know the computer industry and the idea is the more data you take stuff with the more useful it is later Um, you know you've got things like spotlight on the Mac which use you know all this data attached to your files to find the right files and to index things and whatnot and I mean, I guess I'm just curious, especially since video is so bad at searchability. I mean, it looks like this is one of the big things that Final Cut Pro X is trying to address. Mm-hmm. This this idea of, you know, there's been a shift sort of across the board as people get more and more and more files that you don't you don't organize files like you organize your desk where everything has a place where it belongs and you go back to that place. You know, you don't have a you know, filing cabinet with labeled folders that you stick stuff in. You know, that was the old model of storing files. And now the model is something more like iPhoto where you dump everything in and then when you need something you type in what you're looking for and it shows it to you. You know, mm-hmm. whether that's the name of a friend or whether that's a location. And so I wonder how much of that we can get, you know, how much of that will be happening going forward with video metadata. 
Yeah. I, you know, just like with all metadata, this sort of automatically generated stuff tends to not be all that useful. Um, you know, location is probably the one that I see being most useful. Although I guess you could, you know, one of the things that I'll be interested in um, is, you know, Final Cut X, I think, you know, I know iMovie and Final Cut X as well does tagging based on what type of shot it is. And my understanding is that they're doing that mostly based on actual image analysis. Um, but right. I wonder actually now if they're looking at things like zoom level, probably not. Um, for the To for say the, this is a wide shot, this is a close up, because I guess they wouldn't know because they don't know where their camera is situated. Right. But, yeah, uh, they're doing that all based on uh, head tracking. Like facial analysis is my understanding. So wide shots are things without faces in them. Medium shots are things with faces that aren't more than X percent. Right, right, right. It'll be interesting though. And again, I think this is one of the areas where you hit that limitation with um, QuickTime's system of metadata not being tied to frames, but rather being tied to movies. But, you know, I'd be interested, for example, in an app that um, reconstructed a virtual camera based on all of the metadata that the camera's saving so that you could then throw in 3D objects really easily, for example, because you've got zoom level, you've got focus depth. Um, You know, you could reconstruct a camera if you knew a little bit about the lens of the camera as well. and, yeah. you know, maybe do some interesting things. I, I, I'm curious. I mean, I think Apple may have hit the right. I think the you know going forward, the image analysis path is the way to go for stuff like that. I'm just not sure how much you get with a GPS or with. Sure. You know, the accuracy needs to be so high for something like that that you really have to look at the image, and not at. You know, whatever random data the camera's writing out. Sure. Well, it'll be interesting to see. You can start yeah. sending us email. Uh, we'll put two four out, two four four out sometime in the next uh, few days. And uh, hopefully, there are no other issues. I think we're good to go. Yeah, I think so. Um, Somewhat so related. I just cameras. Well, before we get to that, I wanted to quickly touch on this automatic duck announcement because I think it's a little bit related. Um, They sent out an email this last week basically saying all of the automatic duck products are free now. Um, So we talked about them a week or two ago, I think, when Wes started working for Adobe. So Wes announced that a while ago that he was going to Adobe to work and that... You know, and the actual business relationship there is not clear because it, you know, I don't think Adobe bought Automatic Duck, right? I don't think so either. No, but the way it was framed in the announcement, I think, was basically a partnership between Automatic Duck and Adobe, wherein West goes to work for Adobe. And so I don't really know how that all worked out, but the long and short is, I mean, he's staying in, he's think he's in Washington, Seattle, something like that, but he's definitely not moving here. So he's not moving to the HQ. Right. I don't know. The long and short is that all the automatic deck stuff is free. Um, you know, my I think the only assumption you can jump to is that they are free in the same way that web objects is free. Well, yeah, I mean, I, they said that. I mean, we're unable to provide support at the same level as we have over the years. Right. But we don't want them to go away. So, so that means they're dead, but you may as well download them if they're still useful to you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. I mean, an automatic duck, um, 
you know, it's been a, always been a, a pretty premium product in terms of pricing, and so it's um, not something some users have been able to stretch to for the type of use it provides. Obviously, if it solves a workflow need that is critical to you, it's you know, obviously you're going to buy it. But um, for example, for some of the people moving you know in and out of Final Cut X, it's been maybe a luxury they haven't been willing to spring for since it I think cost more than Final Cut X. Um, yeah. But now you know it's a it's a pretty cool thing to have out there for free and might at least. Um, you know, get people thinking about some different workflows. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I, this obviously helps both Avid and Adobe a lot, which I'm sure is part of the reason for this. You know, it makes it very easy to switch to Premiere. Yeah. So, you know, which is, you know, it's nice to have those options now. Yeah, cool. Um, I'm still, I'm sort of shocked. I, I went looking the other day you know, because when Final Cut released their XML um, import-export and the DTD, I was sort of thinking that we would have a lot of XML manipulation tools quickly, and there really isn't that much out there. And Resolve, DaVinci, uh, Blackmagic is now shipped an update for DaVinci Resolve that adds Final Cut X import-export, and there are a few other things hitting the market, but I sort of thought we'd have a bunch of little utility-type things um, right off the bat. And, I don't know if that's a sign of demand or just that people are thinking bigger or what, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I just assumed that we would have, you know, five, ten, fifteen dollar apps to move from Final Cut Seven to Final Cut X, you know, by now. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think it's a difficult no project. I guess I guess automatic ducks undercut them now, so yeah. Speaking of uh, software getting abandoned. Ah, oh, come on. You. Okay, go ahead. Let's get this over with quick. There's a thing going around because someone posted an inflated uh, headline on Dig saying Apple has abandoned. If Apple has officially abandoned QuickTime for Windows. Um. The, the the real gist of it is that Apple Apple's development developer technical support replied to some dude saying that they weren't providing um, developer level support technical support assistance for QuickTime for Windows, um, which as best as I know is something they've been saying for quite a while. I don't think that anything has changed, and I don't think that it's an indication one way or the other of Apple's. Um, commitment to QuickTime for Windows, which is that they need QuickTime for Windows around um, to support iTunes, I guess. I don't even know if iTunes uses it anymore. Probably not. Yeah, I'm not sure they need it anymore. In any case, if you're still building your product around QuickTime for Windows, you might want to rethink that, but I don't think that this announcement or lack thereof um, should be the motivating factor. I think the fact that they haven't really kept, you know, there's no indication they're doing QuickTime X for Windows, um, and QuickTime Seven for Windows has always been a little bit shoddy. So, yeah, it is a little strange. Um, you know, Apple's created a streaming standard called HTTP Live Streaming, which is what's used for iPhone, iPad, and also by Safari on the Mac. Going back to um, the release of Snow Leopard, and I think it also works, yeah, because it would work in Safari 4 under Leopard as well. And they've never brought any of that capability to Windows, which I think... Really? It's not in Safari for Windows? I don't think so, no, because Safari for Windows just uses normal QuickTime 7. 
I believe. Huh. Um, it's just strange because, you know, it's a streaming format that a lot of people have jumped on to, obviously, because they want to support the iOS devices. Um, but it means that content producers are stuck also at a minimum um, providing streaming generally via Flash. And given Apple's um, hatred of Flash, you think they would be more actively working to take that out of the equation and have a ubiquitous standard that uh, people could actually jump on as their only streaming delivery. Yeah, I'm. to me it seems kind of proof that Apple doesn't really care about Flash. Like, everyone seems to think that, like... Apple thinks of Flash as some sort of mortal enemy. Mm-hmm. But I think they just, they're just like, no, we're not going to put it in our shit. Like, done. Yeah. Like, I don't think they stay up. I think Adobe stays up late at night thinking about how, you know, how much Apple hates it. But I don't think Apple even had a second thought about it. They're just like, we're not going to do it. Right. Here's our other option. I don't think they're trying to kill Flash or anything. They're just never going to support it. Right. I think that's probably accurate. But. So I don't, I mean, I don't think they gain anything by, I mean, they should do it on Windows because, I don't know, you would think Safari would be similar on the two, but I don't think it, I don't think the fact that it would hurt Adobe matters much to them. Yeah. Well, and they did, I think, submit their HDB Live um, to IETF, so... I guess they nothing, have now. Yeah, I think there's nothing preventing people from implementing it, but and it's not like it's. I mean, it's, there's no secret sauce in it. It's HTTP transports or H two sixty four transport streams with M three U playlist files. Um, there's there's absolutely no sort of magic technology that makes streaming possible. It's sort of a brute force streaming protocol. Yeah. Um, for better or worse. So. Yeah. Windows. Windows. Cool. So, okay, cameras. What came out? What's new? Why should we care? Um, well, there's two big announcements yesterday. Canon announced their first cinema camera in a long time. So Canon used to do um, film cameras back in the day, didn't they? Really? I don't remember that, but I'm not as old I think, as you. I, I think it was like before any of us. I want to say 40 years or so ago they did. Um, but they have been in the still market only for a long time. And then DSLR filmmaking came along and they became pretty popular. <coughs> yeah, I mean, they were huge players, obviously, back in the, the DV days. Um, they were the first to really make... I think. I mean, the XL1 was the first sort yeah. of really serious, uh, more than just a gussied up consumer camera type of DV camera, at least that I recall. That's true. Yeah. That was the, uh, if you wanted a big lens. Yeah. And that was the first removable lens, low cost thing. Yeah. But they, um, so they got really big, you know, so they always had a video side, but in the, filmmaking side in the more like I'm going to collect lenses um, they never really took off I mean I guess the XL1 yeah that's true but um, anyways they finally now move their you know they have a 
an upgrade path from their DSLRs into right. Well, let's stop there. Sort because... of a competitor to you know the recent CMOS cameras we've seen come out of. Right. I mean, think Sony F three um, or AF one hundred from yeah, Panasonic. Yeah, the Sony FS one hundred, um, and even even at the higher, you know, moving even the on red. Up, Alexa. Um, yeah, the yeah. red Alexa, the various other higher end Sony's and Panasonic devices. Um, but let's st- pause there because I think what's int- what's really interesting about this from a historical perspective in terms of Canon is that for years and years and years. Um, when I was working at the university, for example, I would deal with three different Canon reps. There was the Canon video rep, the mm-hmm. Canon stills rep, and the Canon lens rep. Right. And none of them wanted to talk about each other's product lines. And that was always sort of a bad sign. Um, and even until recently, you know, the digital SLR side was releasing the 5D Mark II and the 7D, which really pushed into video. I mean, the 7D in particular was really, you know, a video camera. Um, at least in in terms of who they were thinking about it, think. Um, And at the same time, the video side was releasing things like the XF305 and some of these cameras um, that were actually more expensive than the DSLRs. And it was tough to sort of go and look at the Canon product line and understand who each camera was for sometimes. And so this new camera, the C300, and there there are a couple other cameras sort of related that I don't know the numbers on, um, is ostensibly a combination of people from the cinema the video side and people from the still side along with lenses by canon all coming together into a single product so they're making cinema lenses for the first time um, as well as a camera that's dslr like in terms of form factor and interface um, and size of sensor and everything but with a video codec um, and a video workflow right that's really good, you know. It's like finally Canon sort of is doing the smart thing in terms of leveraging some of the uh, skills that they have internally. Yeah, it will be interesting. Um, I'm curious to see. So it's nice that they, you know, the Canon lenses is great. I think that's a, that's a big thing because they've always made really, really good glass. Right. Yeah. Especially so on the video side and. Uh, for them to get into doing, and there's going to be two versions of this camera, um, one that takes EF lenses and one that takes PL mount lenses. So, um, you know, if you've already bought a lot of still SLR lenses, you'll be able to slap those on. Or if you've got a bunch of, you know, 16 mil PL lenses, you'll be able to slap those on as well. Is it 16 or 35? Or 35? Yeah, 35. Yeah. Um, it's a super 35 sensor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then they're going to be doing their own relatively affordable lenses, I think, in the sort of $6,000 range for the different lenses they've announced. They've announced some primes and some zooms. Um, that, That's great. That look great. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff about this camera, and we'll link to um, some sample footage as well. Um, so the immediate reaction was, oh, my God, it's so expensive. It's, you know, somewhere between sixteen dollars and $20,000 Um list and you know that'll be substantially less once it hits b and h i would assume um so it's not cheap it's not like a 5d mark ii um so it's it's too expensive this is the criticism it's too expensive and it's not 4k right so which we've talked about before when i th- i think 
I was immediately attracted to it because it sort of plays to all of my biases in how you would construct a camera in terms of what you optimize for. Right. Um, and I think it's a really interesting sensor. Um, have you read much about how the sensor's laid out? Uh, no, I haven't found any technical information about this camera mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, unfortunately. I hope they put out... Um, you didn't link to any either. Yeah, I hope, they, I hope they point, put out some white papers on you know, some of the internals of this camera, um, or maybe they'll do some sort of tech talk tours or something. Um, the sensor itself is a 4k sensor in terms of raw pixels. Um, but it's not laid out in a traditional Bayer pattern. Instead, it's essentially laid out as, um, 1080p, you know, 1920 by 1080 worth of photo sites that consist of four subpixels. And you have a, a one red subpixel, one blue subpixel, and two green subpixels um, arranged in a, a square. So it's like red, green, blue, green, or red, green, green, blue, I think. Um, and uh, those three samples, or those four pixels are combined to create one RGB sample. Um, and so, right. you're, you know, it's 444 four, four sampling, although internally it then, you know, samples down to 422. Um, but I think that's a a nice sensor design um, in that you're not doing any debayering. Um, and one of the things I'm hoping they will announce is what they're doing with that extra green sample and whether they're actually using that to increase dynamic range, which is what I'm assuming that um, the one of the green pixels in each cluster is um, has some neutral density type stuff on it so well. that it's exposing differently. Yeah, that could be nice, but at the same time, you always want more green. I mean, a traditional Bayer has far more green samples than anything else. Yeah, but Bayer is under-sampling the other things. In this case, you're actually getting one-to-one sampling, so there's no advantage. Right. In, I mean, you know. Well, there's still an advantage because by the time you get to YUV, I think... No, oh, because... More, by the time you're in YUV, more than 50% of your... Right, but in between data there, is weighted to green. In between there, you have at a minimum you've gone to RGB, and so you've taken those two green samples and, in some way, combined them down to one sample. Mm, I guess yeah. So, it just seems like it's only useful to me if you're using it to. Yeah, I could. I can imagine. I wonder if they're electronically weighting them or if they've actually baked ND onto the die. Right. I don't know. It's just, um, I, yeah, I don't know what to expect from it, but uh, it, it was one of those things that caught my eye, which is you know, why, why exactly they were laying it out like that when there are plenty of traditional ways to do a full, um, you know, a full RGB chip um, like Sony has on the F65 and some of the others. Right. Um, it's also interesting in that um they are so their their cmos chip they they just sort of allude to a bunch of other interesting things they're doing to help with refresh rates and things like that um internally i guess it can operate up to 1080p 60 although their processing um is capped at 30p right now and they may do a future release that does 60p um but then they they down res everything to 422 um for I assume because they're using a 422 codec and I don't know. No. It, it, the, the other side of this in terms of, I mentioned that it plays to my biases, um, is that 
it's got this really solid workflow, which is that it uses the the same 422 codec that's in the Canon XF series, which is an MPEG-2 based codec. Um, very, I mean, in in many ways, it's a 50 megabit codec. In many ways, it's like the old DVC Pro 50 format, which is it's sort of two four two zero streams, I think, um, or or at least you can sort of think of it like that. Um, stored in an MXF format on compact flash cards. So, right, yeah. Um, that was true of DV. That's not true of their MPEG two based stuff, is it? I guess maybe not. Probably not. In any case, it's you know it's fifty megabit, so it's lots of data, but not crazy amounts, and it's not like raw. And the idea is that all the NLEs already have support for this format. So unlike most new cameras that come out, it's going to work from day one with Final Cut 7, Final Cut X, Avid, Premiere, everything. Uh, and it's actually well supported too. Right. It's not like Panasonic's stinky DVC Pro HD codec. <laughs> so <sighs> it's, I think it's going to be really nice for, um, for people who buy these to be able to jump in right away. And I think that's what's attractive about this is that it's really unlike the the next camera we're going to talk about it's really sort of an end-to-end out-of-the-box solution um, right that you know it comes with a lens and body and you can slap on all your existing dslr accessories um and start shooting yeah i was surprised as a hot shoe yeah i guess i guess they all have hot shoes don't they a lot of them do yeah just i mean are, are not even hot they just all have shoes right but i don't know i guess that i don't know Maybe I've gotten used to seeing lots of quarter, 20 yeah. screw holes and things lately. <laughs> uh, one bummer, I will say, is that they don't have um, the HDSDI output on it is a single link, um, and it's not 3G, and that sort of surprised me, I think. Oh, so it down reses to 1080p? Well, it's always 1080p, but uh, they're not able to do 444 out of it which doesn't make a ton of sense to me since they are pulling 444 off the camera it off the sensor it would seem to make sense to have a 3g link on it so that you could grab rgb 444 off the camera yeah um just yeah, seems, they might be down sampling ahead of that though. right that yeah i mean it sounds like they're up against the limits of some of their uh processing engine stuff there i think they call it their digic engine um, yeah. it sounds like that is one of the limiting factors in terms of frame rate and other things so they may not have the capability to push that but it's still just in terms of if you wanted to make this camera a little more perfect um yeah oh the other thing it offers um which is really cool is that it can shoot log um, which has nice. become, you know, especially with like the F3, um, something that people are starting to expect on cameras in this range. Um, and, and with the F3, it's a pretty expensive upgrade to actually get that added to your camera. And so it's nice that this is doing that out of the box. Although it also means that um, we're going to see a lot of really muddy footage on Vimeo from people who shot, who put it in log mode because they hear logs better and then never regrade it. Right. And then. Yeah, we should have a conversation about logs sometime. Yeah. You're all doing it wrong. Don't color correct log. You have to inverse log it first. Right, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, yes, that camera will be interesting. Yeah. Do you think the other one will be interesting? Yeah, so the other one is red, announced the Scarlet. They, they announced, announced the Scarlet. Wow. Um, for the fifth or sixth time, yes. Yeah. 
So it is, are they, they're not shipping, right? No. It's red, of course not. Scarlet, which was going to be the $3,000 digital SLR type camera from red, is now the $13,000 camera from red. I, I honestly, I, I'm a red cynic, yes. I've tried. I cannot figure out why red has three cameras. Um, I don't know. What what is differentiating the Scarlet? It's 4K, just like their other cameras. I guess some of them are 5K, I guess. Great. Yeah. Okay. It's cheaper, right? Slightly cheaper. You know, different um, lens mounts, I guess. It's uh it's lighter gray. color. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, it, do, it definitely seems like it did not differentiate itself the way they were originally planning on. Right. And I wonder, I don't see why. I mean, I don't see it. I don't see a business reason for not differentiating it. I wonder if there was a technical reason. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the Like they couldn't situation. make it small enough or they couldn't or bring enough. the price down enough to not add all the features that you can get for free when you're doing an FPGA. Right. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm I mean, red. you know, as we say, red has has found a niche. There's obviously a lot of them out there, and they're being used in a lot of different productions. And so, if you've already got a red workflow, having more cameras to choose from, and you know, having a slightly cheaper one that you can use with your DSLR lenses or whatever is is fine. But I guess it, you know, it made a lot of the fanboy types excited because it's a 4k camera that's slightly less expensive um and i guess that just doesn't make me as excited yeah it will i mean mm-hmm. so is it i don't know what is the yeah what is the big it takes canon glass is that the big difference um i guess i think you can get different mounts for it though yeah eh, i don't know so I know I don't know, but uh, they'll ship them next month. They say. Yeah, the other thing I found curious. So they're really. I mean, the other thing I guess is they're not targeting video at all with this, because they don't even crank up to. It looks like they don't get. They won't even reach thirty frames a second. Oh yeah, they will. Uh, the they? thing I'm seeing is 5K at 12 frames per second That's for or 4K at 25, which I assume means 24, 25. But then I think they also do, I think if you do quad HD instead of 4K, which you only give up a handful mm-hmm. of pixels, then they'll do up to 60 or something. Oh, okay. In any case, yeah, it's... Oh, yeah, frames, frame rates it does, three, 29... Or sorry, 2398, 2425, 2997, 4879, 48, 50, and 59, I thought it was interesting that Apple released the source to their uh, lossless audio format, ALAC. Yeah, I... I assume this means that they're discontinuing it or, or something. No, I mean, 
So it's well, the thing is, it's already, I mean, it's been reverse engineered yeah, it's worth, for years. It's worth mentioning some caveats. One is Alec was reverse engineered years ago and is part of FFmpeg. And so there is an open source Alec encoder and decoder. Um, so this is just another one, um, an official one. Um, I guess one thing that's kind of nice about it is I believe they put it under an Apache 2 license, which means that they're licensing, they've opened all any intellectual property as well. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, before this, there was no official announcement that it was not patent infringed. Right. Well, not even patent infringed because that's not, you can never prove that. Um, but it's not, there was no. There was no patent claim against it. There was, well, there was no, I mean, originally you could do it, but Apple, there was no official word from Apple as the inventor that they didn't reserve the right to sue you later. Right. Whereas now there is. So that's the big thing. But I mean, there's also been a competitor, Flack, which is, from everything I hear, pretty similar implementation-wise and uh, use case-wise. I mean, there's not a big difference in quality or bit rate or anything like that right and i think that's just like how we mentioned prores and dnxhd are very similar because when you're trying to do these you know in the case of alloc it's actually mathematically lossless um right and so flat. yeah so it's much more like a zip compression or something it's just you know run like encoding and those sorts of things right those are pretty well solved problems. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the, the actual source is, you know, one file and a couple hundred lines. It's not a, an advanced sort of thing, but. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't see much coming of it. No, I mean, these, these lossless formats have always been really for, you know, fish fans and, and other crazy people. Um, and so I don't, I don't really care one way or the other, you know, pros use LPCM because when you're working in video, the difference between compressed and uncompressed audio is meaningless because it's, you know, for your entire project, it's the same as three seconds of video or something. It's just not a meaningful amount of storage. And for everyone else, 128 kilobit or 192 kilobit AAC is more than good enough. And so... I don't know. Do do edit systems do any edit systems support any decent compressed audio? Not that I know of. I mean, I'm sure I'm just curious because one of the things, I mean, with clip wrap, if you you know, that we found rewrapping if you rewrap H two six four in the process we will decode your audio to LPCM. And at this point, like LPCM five point one audio it's not that much smaller than the video if it's still right. 25 megabit. That's true. So, I mean, I could see I could see a use case for that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. But nobody really supports it, so it's not a workflow solution. Right. right. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think it's just never been a big enough issue for people to care. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah, you want to button this up, do our chatter, and yeah, get sure. lunch? Sure. Okay. What did you find this week? Uh, what am I going to pick here? I'll throw out this one. Um, I linked to um, the official-ish 
acknowledgement that Apple bought a company called C3, which does um, mapping. They're Swedish, I think, somewhere somewhere that doesn't get a lot of sunlight. Um, this is another in the round of oops, of Apple buying companies that do things with mapping. Um, this is one of the more impressive ones, and, and just follow the link that we'll put in the show notes um, and take a look at the demo video they've got. Um, they're able to reconstruct from 3D sat or from satellites. They're able to reconstruct really impressive 3D models of um, satellite imagery. I assume is it satellite or plane? I thought it was plane. Is it plane? I think I it's know. all plane based because they do some laser scanning. Laser scanning as well. Yeah. No. In any case, it's sort of unreal um, the the images they're able to generate, um, and so you really, I mean, you know one assumes that Apple's buying these companies because they want to get rid of Google Maps, but I'm not sure of that. I think that they may have something cooler planned, but we'll see. Well, they want, I mean, not get rid of them in the sense that they want to. They want to have an alternative for the iOS. Right. Yeah. But no, I think this this technology in particular is just incredibly impressive um, in terms of the quality of the imagery they generate. And so... I will be eager to see it in a, implemented in an actual product. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it'll be curious to see. You could do some fun stuff with that in uh, um, editing application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, take your GPS metadata and generate your fake helicopter. Absolutely. Yeah, they're doing it all from from a plane. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that'll be fun. Um, mine this week is a um, video that's going around on Vimeo about um, all the awesome options for iPhone cinema, I guess is the best way to explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called iPhone Cinema Exposed. And uh, let's see, it looks like it's by Abraham Jaffe. Um, But check it out. It's fun. It skewers a couple of the big people in the industry. Pretty good. I thought it was, it's it's very well done and very funny. Um, I will say I was just down um, in Texas helping a friend get set up with um, some iPhone cinematography gear. Um, the Auli Bubo and some related products, and actually, I was kind of impressed. I think I'm starting to, I, I am starting to get the um, the reasons why you might get into this space because, you know, especially if you've already got an iPhone. But you know, even if you don't, you, the price level, obviously, if you need a phone, the price level is such that it's sort of better quality than you get in other two hundred dollar cameras um, without any sort of fidgetiness. You know, you just open the camera app and hit record and you tap to expose and you tap to focus and the workflow is pretty straightforward. Um, and the imagery looks really good. Um, so not as good as if you had a large prime <laughs> lens on the front. This is true. Yeah. No, those, those rigs are definitely crazy. Um, but there is something to be said for a decent camera that you always have with you in your pocket and you know, that you can make look quite a bit better with a, little hundred dollar accessory yeah i suppose so okay you're blowing up over there i am blowing up let's uh, call it let's call it quits 
see you next week we'll talk about the uh, apple space tv oh yeah let's Put do that it in the show notes all right okay bye next week